glory to Jesus Christ, and welcome to the 13th, I believe it's the 13th episode of Encountering the Trinity. Perhaps I should... Yes, yes it is. I just checked our website, Father Phil, and it is episode number 13, and it is a beautiful Monday. Um, just like to welcome everyone to our podcast, and a uh, quick reminder that our podcast can be found on iTunes if you actually do a search for Encountering the Trinity. It's real easy that way to sync up with your iPod and listen to Father Phil and I. And um, Father Phil, if you don't mind starting, excuse me, starting us out with a prayer. Happy to do it. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we thank you for all the graces that you into our lives, but especially that gift of your Holy Spirit that makes us seek you uh, in deeper knowledge, faith, and love. Grant us the illumination we need as we record this podcast, and also illumine the minds and hearts of those who may listen to this so that it redounds to their salvation and helps make them uh, more uh, beautiful instruments of love in the world. Use us and use uh, this ministry which we dedicate to your mother, so that uh, others who will, who need to know you, will come to know you through our attempt to cooperate uh, with your will. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, just a, a quick reminder for our listeners, Father Phil, we can be found on Twitter at Most Holy Trinity. And also on Facebook, forward slash Encountering the Trinity, we have a page there. And we can also, like I mentioned before, we can be found on iTunes, do a, a search for Encountering the Trinity. And if you'd like to get a hold of us uh, via email, we can be reached at EncounterTheTrinity at gmail.com. So it's a little slightly different than the um, web page, the website, or the Facebook page. And, of course, all of these things that I just mentioned can be found on our website at EncounteringTheTrinity.com. And, Father Phil, right now I am looking at a really beautiful icon of the life of St. Paul that's posted on our website. And it reminds me of what we talked about last week, which was uh, beginning our talk of what St. Paul meant uh, and means when he says, or uses the phrase, in Christ. And I know that you had um, gone into some detail of um, um, just, you know, kind of beginning to flesh that out and, and how Luther and therefore Calvin also misunderstood St. Paul. And I was wondering if there's anything else that you would like to add to that before we go on. Stop. Well, that's uh, thanks, Steve, for asking. Uh, you know, we went into such length last week, I won't repeat myself at any length, but yes, that's right. I, probably to the detriment, Steve, of uh, Christianity, really, um, because, uh, you know, the patristic vision of what Paul meant by living in Christ, uh, Luther and Calvin, if they were here today, would say that they were seeking to restore that. But as we said last week, uh, Protestant scholars in particular have, uh, through historical research of first century and second temple Judaism, uh, established beyond a shadow of a doubt that Paul uh, did not view 
the debate between uh, about justification, whether by faith or good works. Paul did not think in those terms. He did not think of keeping the law as what Catholics are accused of thinking of as good works, or even what works means, say, in the letter of James. The law for Paul was a, a means of expressing gratitude for, be, for having been elected to be in the covenant, and keeping the law assiduously was a, a good Jew's way of remaining in right relationship with God, not as a matter of gaining salvation, but of being a faithful member of the chosen people, and in so doing, um, living the hope that as more people came in, remained, and got into more proper right relationship with God. In other words, shaping up the lackadaisical Jews. The more that people were properly aligned with God as he had established in the covenant through the law. The word justification, you know, in Hebrew, connotes a sense of being in proper order, not of being uh, legally justified before a judge. There are juridical overtones of, of, of righteousness and judgment in the scriptures, but primarily when you look at it in terms of the covenant, the covenant was given to the people of Israel as a means of bringing about a restoration of the original communion with the Trinity that was lost through the original sin of Adam and Eve. And it was the Jewish hope and belief that by living the covenant as God prescribed it in the law, when everybody was in proper alignment, i.e. justified between God, by living in the covenant as he desired, he would then use that, uh, that alignment of the Jewish people as the light unto the nations and use that as an instrument of restoring all nations to himself. So Israel's mission was that of a catalyst. They were meant to be a sign and an instrument of God's restorative uh, restoring of community with the human race, with the divine. And that's why Paul was so exercised when laxed, that's why Pharisees were so exercised with Jews who did not keep the law assiduously. They were delaying the uh, long-awaited return from exile and perfect restoration of communion that God had given the covenant for in the first place. And, and we know that the covenant was originally given to Abraham, the promises of uh, becoming a great nation and restoring all people to communion with God. Those Promises were given to Abraham even before there was a law given to Moses. And so that's why Paul could say, we are justified. We are brought into right relationship with God through faith, not through the works of the law. Because Abraham was in right relationship with God through his trust that God's promises would be uh, fulfilled uh, long before Moses ever had received the law. But it was not by any means a discounting of the law as an additional means of being in right relationship with God. Well, all of that was discovered by Protestant scholars in the mid, uh, mid 20th century, beginning with really beginning with Albert Schweitzer and then moving into this scholar I mentioned, E.P. Sanders and others. Uh, but it's really a return to the Catholic view of Paul, uh, essentially. And basically it says, do not read Paul through 20th century eyes. Don't even read Paul through the uh, paranoia of a uh, Luther uh, or a, um, uh, a moralistic 
um, the moralistic myopia of Calvin. Look at look at Paul through the eyes of a first century Jew, one who was looking forward to the coming of God through the Messiah by living in right relationship with God. So the the, the law and good works and faith were not at all what Luther conceived them to be. And it was really Schweitzer, Albert Schweitzer, the great missionary. He was also, unbeknownst to a lot of people, a very accomplished scripture scholar. And he said, not only did Luther and Calvin get it wrong about this false dichotomy between faith and works, but they also failed to see that um, when St. Paul uses the phrase in Christ, uh, he means something much more profound than just the legal fiction of being justified in God's eyes, imputed righteousness, to quote the, the reformers. He meant something much deeper than that superficial, rather forensic or legalistic metaphor of being regarded as righteous, even though in ourselves we are not righteous. That, that whole argument of Paul and Calvin turns on a notion of righteousness that is absolutely anti-Jewish, so therefore not correct and not Pauline. Um, and Sanders, uh, Schweitzer and Sanders and all these, even these other Protestant scholars have said, not only does living in Christ mean something much different from and much more profound than and much deeper than and much more personal than being legally regarded uh, God as not having any guilt, but it means something uh, almost mystical, said uh, Schweitzer. In fact, he entitled his book, The Mysticism of St. Paul. And he said, it's not only mystical and it's not only personal, but it's not by any means meant to be metaphorical. It's meant to be real, more real, in fact, than any other reality that a Christian can conceive of, more real than the empirical world, more real than the scientific endeavors that Schweitzer himself uh, spent his life dedicated to. And not only that, but it's it's th this participation in Christ, this this in ingrafting of the person into Jesus Christ also occurs, Schweitzer alleged, sacramentally through baptism. So it's regenerative, which is another doctrine uh, repudiated by the Calvinists and quasi admitted by the Lutherans, but not at all interpreted as the, the church from the earliest days and consistently in the Catholic Church has always meant it to be that somehow in baptism, I am created anew to use Paul's language or to hearken back to the language of John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Every branch that lives in me will live forever, but every branch that is separate from me uh, will wither and die. And my father prunes these branches that they may grow more. Well, this sense of the branch being connected to the vine is an image of this patristic doctrine known as the doctrine of participation. And to participate in the patristic understanding and in the Pauline understanding does not mean, uh, like some of the proponents of Vatican II have interpreted it to mean, a lot of activity or a lot of yakking. You know, we're participating <laughs> in the Mass, so yeah. therefore we're making a lot of noise or we got a lot of external behavior going on. No, no. The doctrine of participation actually is a, is a quasi-Platonic doctrine from the philosophy of Plato, but appropriated by the early church fathers to connote 
a participation in, the creature's participation in the creator, much akin to the way that a branch participates in the vine. Notice that which is doing participating, namely the branch, is not the source of the life. But once it's linked to the source of the life and quote unquote participates in it, i.e. drinks deeply from it, i.e. is seminally connected to it, i.e. draws its very life from it. Once that mystery is affected, the life that flows into the branch is of a qualitatively and ontologically different and superior form of the life that it had on its own prior to the engrafting process. Yeah, it was. Early- um, oh, I, I uh, if you don't mind me interrupting a second, Father Phil, uh, I, I was trying to um, explain this to my son and my daughter. My son's 14 and my daughter is going to be 11 here in just a couple weeks and uh, trying to, you know, draw, draw pictures, um, literally, because I use a whiteboard of what it means to be in Christ, kind of like a visual, uh, a pict- you know, pictorial understanding of, okay, this, this is one understanding, Catholic understanding, and this is uh, the majority of uh, Protestant understanding, um, i.e. Luther and Calvin. And as I was doing it, I, I, I was, I was drawing a few things and I, I got done and, and my son says, oh, so it's like, the Catholic understanding is like, so God has a house, this big house, and it's called the church. And that's funny because that's right from St. Paul, the household of God, which is the church, the pillar and bulwark of the truth, you know, uh, uh, Timothy in the writings of uh, uh, Timothy and, uh, uh, or Paul's letter to Timothy, excuse me. Um, and anyways, my son says, oh, so it's like we, we get invited into this big house, you know, God's house. We come into it and live in it i.e. the body of Christ, um, versus Christ coming into, on the, you know, the other view is that Christ comes into my house and lives in my house. And, you know, he lives in each little person's house. And I said, you know, I, I don't know, if it, it, what, what do you think of that analogy of, does that kind of paint a picture of what you're trying to say is, is that um, the, 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 the Catholic, the patristic, view is uh, one of coming into a family, a household, a covenantal bond, um, and and living within that. And because of that, then that, you know, and I guess the, the, the branch, the participation, all that, does that, does that analogy hold up? Um, it's great for children because it would be a place for them to start to begin to comprehend the mystery. But I would say in the main, no, Steve. Uh, just as the images that are often used in standard Catholic apologetics nowadays, totally severed from the patristic vision, will often use those kind of, rest, those kind of mechanical metaphors. That's a beautiful one. Everything you've told your children is absolutely true, but it really would not begin to touch the intimate, personal, and organic nature and depth of how the fathers wrote about this uh, following um, following the, the mystical philosophy of Plato. They really did borrow certain uh, philosophical constructs of participation 
in Greek, methexis, um, to, to connote that the connectivity, Steve, it would be more, and this is why, you know, that metaphor would be perfect for kids. And it was a stroke of genius and a gift of the Holy Spirit that that image came to your son's mind and a gift of grace that, that, uh, that touched you so much and me when I read your email regarding that. Um, but, for, you know, for the purposes of our podcast, it's more, Steve, uh, uh, consonant with the nuptial image that the imagery that St. Paul uses. Vine and branches is a metaphor from nature that is found both in John, but found repeatedly in the fathers as well to connote what it means to be in Christ. And I think we did mention before that Paul uses that phrase over 165 times in his epistles. And the metaphors that he uses for it overall are primarily nuptial because he's really trying to say the union with Christ and his church, which is itself the ecclesial form of participation in Christ. Uh, the nuptial, the one flesh union of man and woman is a symbol of the participation in Christ that his entire church uses. So the building metaphor does not really get to the heart of the nuptiality that Paul is trying to convey, though it's perfectly appropriate as a beginning point to understand how the household of God is contained in the kingdom of God, to be sure. Uh, but, the, but, but, it's, but the doctrine of participation um, we participate in God, you know, the original participation in God, there are different levels of participation in God and being in Christ for St. Paul. So the first level would be that we were created in God's image and likeness. And there is a kind of participation in God that Aquinas later would call kind of primary causality. Insofar as anybody and anything is created and held in being by the Creator, which is the Trinity, they are one modest level participating in God. So even plants and animals, this is why for Paul to be in Christ reconstitutes and recreates not only humankind and not only the church, but also recreates all of the cosmos because even the stars and the moon and the rocks and the trees participate in God insofar as they are not the sources of their own existence. Their existence is, to return to the organic metaphor for a minute, their existence is rooted in God because they derive their very being from the being of the Trinity. He does not depend on them in any way whatsoever, but they absolutely, altogether and at all times, even unto eternity, exist only because they are rooted, i.e. participate, in him. Participation always goes, Steve, only in one direction. It goes from the participatable, the one who is participating, or the thing that is participating, into the non-participatable, as the fathers use the word for God the Father, as the, the church fathers use the term for God the Father. To translate into terms we would understand, God participates in no one, but all of being participates in God insofar as it enjoys being at all. So even um, rocks and stars participate in God, and even people who end up in hell 
are still sustained in their being by a God who loves them even in the bowels of hell. There is a, there is a dynamism of participation going on, but that leads us to the second level because everyone, by virtue of their free will, has a choice as to whether or not they in their heart and in their mind and in their will will assent to the participation in God. And to the extent that I open myself further to the participation that God is offering to me, I can enjoy not merely a relationship of participation by virtue of my creation, through the grace of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and the mystery in particular of the sacraments and more intensely of the sacrament of the Eucharist. God offers me an invitation to participate in him or to enter into him nuptially at a level ever more deep contingent upon my assent and openness to it and my willingness to eliminate in my life and in my person any obstacles or impediments insofar as they are in my power to eliminate such that my union with him, my participation in him, my nuptial one flesh union with him, there's really no limit to what that union can be, which is our favorite doctrine of theosis. Uh, because I really, to some extent, at least from my side of the ledger, I control that to the extent that I assent to and cooperate with and do what he wants me to do to open myself to him fully. So I am I am babbling on a little <laughs> bit here uh, in, in response to your to your question. But I think you see here mechanical metaphors as good as they are and as accurate as they are. And yours is a very beautiful one. And, and your son is very inspired. It's really the nuptial metaphor and the organic metaphor. Um, you know, the fathers often used the image of the moon reflecting the light of the sun as an image of participation. Or a flower that is rooted in the earth and derives its life from the earth and gives off a beautiful fragrance. Its fragrance is a function of its being organically connected to its ground, which is God. So all those... The fathers were always trying to connote a, a mystical intimacy with the person of Jesus that we've talked about many times before in terms of the doctrine of theosis. The doctrine of theosis is nothing other than the doctrine of participation described at its most intimate level in the life of a person who, like the Blessed Mother, says yes to the process and to the mystery with everything in her being and also places no obstacle in the way to the Holy Spirit having its way with her. So that's what we all aspire to. And I think um, in, a, in a large nutshell, that's the doctrine. The doctrine of participation and the doctrine of theosis are ultimately the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, going back to baptism and the, that particular sacrament and kind of the... I think you had alluded to the fact that there was a, a definite misunderstanding um, on the part of, of Luther and then definitely with Calvin as to what baptism is and what it means for us as as far as our entrance into the life of uh, in Christ. And I'm uh, just wondering if you could uh, expound on that just a little. What 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 is the difference? What difference does baptism makes make versus 
just someone um, making a, uh, you know, the, the, the sinner's prayer, a moment of uh, conversion like that. What What's the difference? Um, well, I, I, I think maybe to rephrase, maybe here, here's how I would answer that question, because the question itself, Steve, and this is no criticism of you by any means, the, the way the questions we tend to have about baptism and the persons have had about Schweitzer's allegation that it was through baptism, according to Paul, that people are inserted into the life of Christ. The Protestants asked the question, I mean, they already started with the assumption that baptism was not regenerative. But even that term, regenerative baptism, is not a term that the early fathers would have used to describe baptism, though the mystery that they were promulgating is most accurately described as, as um, uh, regenerative. But those are all later categories that derive from a form of Christianity, namely Protestant Christianity or neo-scholastic Catholicism, that themselves have become severed from the patristic tradition. So they, the, the, the early fathers would have never asked the question, what's the, what difference does baptism make? They would start the other way around. They assume because Christ told them, baptize all people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And because they had such a living sense of what it meant to be in the name of somebody, to be in the name of somebody was to acquire their identity. And so when one was baptized in the name of the Father, the life of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit was immediately enjoined to the person, or to put it in the more proper way, the person baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit was immediately gathered into, in a mystical way, into the very persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. See, and that's why we have such a difficult under time understanding why do we even make the sign of the cross? Uh, what does it mean to, to do something in the name of somebody? Somebody comes in the name of the Lord. Those are all cliches for us. The, those a Protestant in particular can't make any sense out of those. It sounds like hocus pocus to them to make the sign of the cross using that formula, that ritualistic slogan. But for the early church, it was anything but. It was just the opposite end of the Coke bottle. It was the large end. So Paul would have said it this way, Steve. Um, in fact, Paul's conversion testifies to this. As soon as he had his conversion, he allowed himself to be led and baptized by the by the brethren because what defined the early christians was the practice of baptism and the practice of eucharist and these were mysteries that the church understood without being able to explain it or even feeling the need to explain it until the early protestant heretics known as the gnostics began to crop up they they understood that mystically a person was made god the moment they were baptized so Rather than try to explain it or say mechanics of how it happens, they simply proclaimed the mystery that it happened based on everything we understand as Jews to be living in the name of somebody and then following the command of Christ to do this, baptize them. How it worked was of absolute no interest to them at all. That it worked and that it translated a mere human being into a divine status such that Paul could describe it as being a new creation. That's what they celebrated. And they actually, 
you know, because they had this discipline of arcana, you know, the discipline of the arcana, the, the ancient discipline. If somebody asks a question like that to them, what difference does it make? Which is exactly what the Gnostics asked. And, and it was exactly baptism as a rite that the Gnostics wanted to get away from for a more mental and ethereal understanding of baptism, just like our modern-day Protestant friends to the most, for the most part. Um, the church wouldn't even discuss it with them. They would say to discuss baptism in the categories of how does it work and what difference does it make is to so trivialize and violate and desecrate the mystery, we're not even going to answer your question. So because I love you, I answered your question. But they, they, would have, they would have spit in the face of a Gnostic and said, if you have to ask, you don't know and you wouldn't understand, and I'm not going to explain it to you. Well, it really, truly is um, just, for me, I, I'm just beginning, and I know I mentioned this on the last podcast, um, to enter into this world. I've been a Catholic for eight, almost nine years, and uh, just... I know we talked about it last podcast, but I have to bring it up again, just how difficult it is to go to transition, you know, from one world literally to another. Um, and uh, um, I, I, I'm also reminded when you uh, you were talking about um, how, you know, when even mention it to certain people, the disciplinary kind of, and uh, um I, I remember it's either C.S. Lewis or G.K. Chesterton that say, in order to dissect something, you first have to kill it. And in a certain <laughs> sense, I think that that, uh, that applies to a lot of theology, is a lot of theology almost kills what it's trying to figure out. So therefore, by the time it actually dissects it, <laughs> it looks like just a bunch of rules or uh, you know some strained teachings. And it, it doesn't really make any sense at all to the, the reader or the listener. And um, so it, I, I guess I'm just trying to express that for me, this is this is something really beautiful and, and mysterious as I uh, in, in prayer. Christ is get more than more than anything has just given me images uh, to kind of help me transition. Um, and it's really only through prayer that I can make that transition. So I, I don't know what that means, but maybe you could expound on that a little. Well, let me affirm your instincts there, Steve. And, and you know how much I love and respect you as a co-worker here in the vineyard of the Lord. But I have often felt, and, this, and I, I know you'll take this exactly in the right way, and our listeners will too, God willing. But you still have several years of detox to do from your Protestant <laughs> yep. uh, upbringing. I mean, you know, as, as Marcus Grody often says on the journey home, it's one thing to move to France and get a green card, their equivalent, but it takes years and years and years to become French. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you're, you know, you're, any Protestant coming into the Catholic Church is making even more a jump than, than, than civic citizenship, you know? And so I don't know that a, a non-Catholic ever gets it out of his system. And that's not a criticism of our non-Catholic friends. It's simply to say uh, how different the worlds that we live in are. And the early church knew this, Steve. They knew it in spades. Uh, Modern-day Protestantism, in my view, is nothing other than rewarmed uh, Gnosticism. And it was the first and most enduring heresy in the church. In fact, I think virtually all heresies can re be reduced to Gnosticism. Uh, and we won't go off on that, but but it takes 
it's very difficult to um, realize that as a Vagrius said, a Vagrius Pontus, the, he's not a saint, but he was a, a revered church father. He said, um, only the person who prays is truly a theologian. And the only true theologians are those who know how to pray in the proper manner. And theology, under the influence both of Protestantism and neo-scholastic Catholicism, have become totally severed from personal holiness and contemplative prayer. But in truth, and the reason the early church called these things that we call, trivially call sacraments, they called them mysteries. And they did that for a purpose, because the, there was no way given human reason and the limits of human reason to accurately describe, debate, or argue about um, what or how these things operated. It was through contemplative faith that you realized that, number one, Jesus is the eternal word of God, and every word he uttered and every command he gave, number one, is exceedingly and infinitely far beyond human understanding. Number two is meant to be obeyed absolutely without question and without qualification. And number three works in a way that our minds will never be able to understand. And until you have that kind of uh, divine understanding of Jesus using his human nature as the instrument of purveying truths that he never for a minute watered down, you can't begin to see that his teaching brings us up to him. And it's an absolute abomination of the faith to try to drag his commands, his words, the mysteries of his church down to our finite fallen understanding of them. As much as we are created in his image and likeness of God and human reason is not unaccurate when it describes the things of God, but it's woefully insufficient at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, amen. And, and so, and so, our ministry—it's not just Protestants who need to change their worldview; it's Catholics, as Benedict and John Paul and all the fathers of Vatican II saw quite clearly. We are laboring theologically, uh, with in our apologetics, in our in our catechesis, we are laboring under essentially, Steve, eight hundred years of a uh, legalistic, uh, this is what Luther in, in his own way was revolting against. We've, we've substituted a juridical, rational, um, analytical approach to mysteries and scriptures and the persons of the Trinity that do not admit of that kind of dissection. Um, so the method has to be dissected uh, before the mystery can be understood. Well, I uh, I definitely um, appreciate all that you've done in your ministry, Father Phil, to uh, help those of us, including me, uh, definitely me, because <laughs> uh, uh, God knows that I, I need this. Um, and uh, I'm sure our listeners appreciate it as well that uh, you've uh, you know, you share all of this with us. And um, I think that we're going to have to wrap things up for this episode of Encountering the Trinity uh, for today. And I think next week we can continue on and uh, go further uh, with St. Paul here. And uh, just a note for our listeners, again, if you'd like to reach us, uh, you can send us an email at encounterthetrinity at gmail.com. You can send us a note across Twitter at Most Holy Trinity. Or you can contact us also on Facebook at forward slash Encountering 
the Trinity there. And we also have a website, EncounteringTheTrinity.com. So there are plenty of ways to get a hold of Father Phil or myself. And we uh, do appreciate any emails that you send in uh, to encourage us or any questions that you have. Uh, those are all appreciated. And um, look forward to spending another uh, episode with you guys in the, in the next week. And Father Phil, if you don't mind taking us out with a prayer. I sure will. And Steve, let me just say, too, with you, I, I join you in conveying our love to our listeners. You know, there is a level of participation you know, not meaning that we get a flurry of activity on our website. We don't yet because we're not known. But we do feel that connection with anybody who writes to us or calls us or promises to pray for us. And that connection, that communion is what Paul and the fathers meant by participation. We participate in each other through this communion of saints that the Internet has made even more available to us. So I join my colleague here, Steve. Um, uh, in love, uh, both for him and what he's doing with this website. Steve is the genius behind this apostolate. We really feel like God has given us complimentary gifts here for the service of the people of God, and we feel anybody who tunes into this is part of our family, just as the Trinity wants every person in the cosmos um, to be part of its family. So thank you, Steve, and thank you to our listeners. Let's finish then with the uh, Glory Be, which is the great doxology of the church, the earliest prayer, one of the earliest prayers, and uh, evidencing the fact that the church believed in the Trinity from the moment that uh, it was revealed in Scripture uh, at Mount Tabor, at the baptism of Jesus, and elsewhere. So let's say that together. Glory be to the Father, Father and, and to, to the, the Son, and, and to the, to Holy, the Holy Spirit, Spirit as, as it was, was in the beginning. beginning is now, now and, and ever, ever shall, shall be, world, world without, without end. end. Amen. Amen. St. Paul the Apostle, pray for us. Amen.